This is the weekly Autism Science Foundation podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, Chief Science Officer. Today is Columbus Day, now recently known as Indigenous Peoples Day. There is so little work done in Native American communities in autism, although there is some, but let's just say we need more research. But when scientists talk about any sort of racial or ethnically diverse group or any underserved community, the key is to get them to a care provider for screening and diagnosis. Services research has been focused on lowering wait times to see a clinician and improving access to doctors or other care providers to make sure that diverse racial and ethnic communities get a proper diagnosis. That's what the emphasis has been on so far. Now, these things are all incredibly important, but as that process gets better, there also have been efforts to improve the quality of the diagnosis rather than just a, oh, it kind of looks like autism sort of thing. This means moving from clinical judgment, which can be spotty and influenced by many things, to using actual diagnostic tools. For example, there's been huge efforts to train community-based physicians to use the Autism Diagnostic Observation Scale. This is the gold standard assessment for autism. However, in most cases, a community physician uses their best judgment based on the criteria in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, or DSM. I think of it as a quality versus a quantity issue. If doctors are too jammed up with wait times, they aren't going to be able to conduct the one to two hour ADOS that's needed to provide a valid diagnosis, nor are they going to be able to be trained to do this to begin with. Of course, I'm not talking about every pediatrician or service provider, but let's just generalize here. Canadians have been doing research on this, and they have interviewed general physicians who do provide diagnoses and asked them what in fact influences the way they diagnose kids with autism. Now, there is parent concern, but they also report that the severity of symptoms influences their diagnosis. Some kids present with what is known as a waiting room diagnosis. The symptoms are pretty severe and they're very apparent. They're more easy to pick up than someone who has more milder symptoms. So symptoms do make a difference. Also, home situation plays a role. If they think symptoms could be caused by neglect or stress, then they might rule autism out at that particular visit. Some doctors feel more comfortable than others making a diagnosis, and others report that they deal with a lot of families who don't speak English, and that that makes it difficult if they're not bilingual. Now, other clinics say if they're a long wait list, they probably won't give a thorough evaluation, and yes, if they feel like they're a long wait list for OTs and speech therapists or other therapists, they are more hesitant to give a diagnosis. But let's not come down too hard on them. These are well-meaning, hard-working primary care doctors who do their best every day and deal with lots of things besides autism. Just the other day, I was at my pediatrician's office and there was a concern that one of the kids in one of the neighboring rooms had whooping cough. I can tell you I got out of there right away. So they deal with lots of stuff. And I don't mean this to be coming down on pediatricians because this is real life. So there are lots of challenges, and in a perfect world, there would not be so many obstacles to a diagnosis. But guess what? There are. A recent study from a clinic in New York City looked at the accuracy of community-based diagnosis to see how many of those community-based diagnoses would actually be considered a research-based or a valid and accurate diagnosis. So specifically, of about 90 kids who got an ASD diagnosis by a community provider, how many had a diagnosis based on standardized instruments used in research that have known specificity and sensitivity? Who had a real autism diagnosis? Well, the results are not that encouraging, but they're not that surprising either. 
While this study didn't look at the reasons why different community providers diagnose kids with autism, when they were actually evaluated, though, using standardized instruments and gold standard tools, 23% of them who had been diagnosed by a community provider did not receive a diagnosis of autism. Not surprisingly, those who ended up not having an autism diagnosis were the ones that had a normal to average IQ scores compared to those with autism who had maybe a 20-point decrease in IQ. Also, those with ASD had lower adaptive scores. This suggests a couple of things. Adaptive behavior and IQ could be ways to differentiate between those with autism features and those with an actual autism diagnosis. Now, I would say that physicians need to start giving the Vineland and the differential ability scales to their patients to help differentiate these two groups. But given that they're not able to spend the time to do the ADOS, I think that that recommendation is probably not that feasible. In fact, 36% of kids who got a PDD-NOS diagnosis did not actually meet the criteria for autism. So this was the highest group. The authors suggest that this has to do with the changes in diagnostic practices under DSM-5, at least in part, but not all of these differences. So what is going on here? Well, the diagnostic changes are one thing, and another hypothesis is that these kids, even if they didn't meet criteria for autism, did get some intervention. So there was a difference in the time from the community-based diagnosis to enrollment in the, in the study. But honestly, most of this just has to do that without the proper assessment tools, community providers cannot be expected to provide the same rigorous diagnosis as researchers, developmental pediatricians, and other trained providers. So what's the solution to this? Well, guess what? I have no idea. I do know that those who received an initial autism diagnosis only to show it was wrong spent who knows how many hours getting the wrong services, even if that number of hours was pretty insufficient. It probably didn't hurt their overall development, but it may not have helped either. Some people will say that too many diagnoses are pushing the current system past their capacity, and that may be true, but that's not really what concerns me the most. Making sure families with autism receive accurate diagnoses so they get the right help is probably the priority here. In other news, there's been a lot of interest in the microbiome in autism, which is the colony of microorganisms in your gastrointestinal system that's also thought to affect brain function. This area of research is being intensely studied, and at the next ASF Day of Learning, we're going to have a presentation by Dr. Sarkis Masmanian, which focuses specifically on the microbiome and what scientists know so far. There isn't a lot known, so a lot of rumors fly around about how the microbiome influences autism and specifically what could cause potential microbiome changes. One theory, and I'm just one, is that cesarean section increases risk for autism, and I want to stop and say that that link has been inconsistent. By delivering cesarean, you're depriving the infant of being able to go through the birth canal and have contact with many bacteria during the process that's important for normal microbiome development. This theory is also known as the hygiene hypothesis, and actually it has been shown to be valid in other conditions like allergies. For example, early exposures to some allergens has reduced allergies later in life in certain countries. Now, allergies are not autism. But that's the general idea, that society is just too clean for its own good. Some people have also said that broad-spectrum treatment of antibiotics because of ear infections in early life permanently alters this microbiome and may lead to autism. Now, first of all, have a baby however you want, through whatever route, whatever delivery method. 
But when it comes to doubting the utility and safety of antibiotics, I do have to say something. Ear infections are real. It's not like getting a cough as an adult and going to the doctor and demanding an antibiotic for no reason. I get how too many antibiotics in our society are leading to antibiotic resistant, and that's causing superbugs, which cause people to get really sick and potentially die. But please don't confuse that with treating a kid with an ear infection with an antibiotic. Kids, and by the way, adults can get ear infections and they can be really painful. So in order to address this specific question, a large-scale epidemiological study in Sweden where they can link medical records all over the place on a single person looked at the question of whether or not C-sections were linked to antibiotic use because of an underdeveloped immune system, and then this is linked to the altered microbiome, which then causes autism. In Sweden, from birth year 1997 to 2010, a whopping 72% of kids got antibiotics during their first two years of life. Now, 18% were delivered by C-section, and those include either emergency C-sections or planned C-sections. So this group compared findings of those with autism to siblings in the same family using a sibling design. Then they looked at different statistical models to see if those who were born by C-section and were given antibiotics had a different risk level. The sibling design already accounts for confounders like ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and genetics of the family, and other things that two siblings share. It may not be available or appropriate for every analysis, but sometimes it's more appropriate statistical design. Using this sort of analysis, these authors found that there was absolutely no link between antibiotic treatment, C-section, and then later autism diagnosis. Now, that's not to say that the microbiome is not involved in autism, because it's likely that given its complexity and now its better understanding in the link to brain function, it can be involved. However, the cause of autism is not because infants don't go through the birth canal, are prone to more infections that lead to more antibiotic use, which then screws up the microbiome and leads to autism. So the link to these three things have been debunked. It's been studied now. So enough of that theory. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll have a special guest, Mark Shen from UNC, talking about new findings in brain development and early markers for autism. Also, Ina Fishman from UCSD will comment about how age changes connectivity of the amygdala to brain areas outside of the amygdala in autism and how this can relate to symptom severity. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.